chapter 15, been with us, we are looking at this parable, the only parable in the Gospel of John. Uh, and John talks about the vine and the branches, the vineyard, the, the vine dresser, and so forth. And he's using those images, those metaphors to describe the relationship with you and I are to have with him and with his father. He, as we got to verse five, it said, I am the vine, Jesus now telling us, you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. In other words, there is, there's growth in our lives. There's things that are profitable as we maintain our relationship with the Lord, as the branch does with the vine. And then he says, for without me, you can do nothing. And that's so true. I tried for years to do that before I was saved. If a man, verse six is where we come now. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what ye will, and it shall be given unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, his purpose, he says, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do whatsoever, I command you. Henceforth, I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. So, in this imagery of abiding in him of having our lives involved in Christ's life. Look, religion, Raylan, Gary, man's attempt to relink can't happen. I grew up, my mom and dad went to different churches. Neither one were saved. They didn't know Christ. So certainly I didn't know Christ as I, as I grew up. And again, when I discovered him, it wasn't religion. It was relationship. It was something real. And he's saying, that's the relationship I want. I'm the vine, you're the branches. There can't be production and fruit in your life unless you're abiding in me. And he goes through that. And then he starts to tell us why that's so important to him. He drops the imagery a little as we move into the other verses. There at verse 6, he says, if a man abide not in me, this is why he's asking us to abide, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Again, he's drawing this picture and putting it in front of us. 
um, the director of the biblical landscape preserve in Israel, quote, says this, the clippings from the vineyards in Israel have but one use. After they have dried, they are used for kindling. This is a man who's presently in charge of the biblical landscape preserve in Israel. The Lord draws this picture of them drying, not being worth anything and being burned. But when we look at that, you know, there's something troubling about that. Obviously, we, you know, we don't, oh, here we go, you know, hellfire, here we go, you know, this is what, no. But, but there's something sobering about that. There's something healthy about that. Um, you know, people get all kinds of vaccinations. People go to hospitals for cures for cancer. People do all kinds of things to preserve their temporary physical life. This is a, an, this is a picture of those whose eternal life is preserved and whose eternal life is lost. When we hear of fire, there's a number of places in the New Testament that give us this picture. Again, in Matthew chapter 3, there John the Baptist is drawing a picture, and there it's the grain and the, the, the harvest. He says there, and the one who's gathering the grain, his fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly purge his floor and he will gather the wheat into the garner, but he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. So again, he used an agricultural picture, but the fire he's speaking of here, he says, is unquenchable fire. Jesus in chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount says, he says, I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Those were the religious hotshots of the day. He says that really didn't know who he was, that weren't really cognizant of that. He said, now I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, the idea is bonehead, <laughs> shall be in danger of the council, the Sanhedrin. But whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Those are sobering words that he shares there. In chapter 18, he says this. He says, wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, Cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter uh, into life halt and maimed rather than have two hands or two feet and be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than to have two eyes and to go and be cast into hell fire. Now, I don't want to see anybody with patches or hooks next week. That, yeah, this is not to be taken literally. He's saying, look, if you think your problem is your hand, cut it off. And you'll still want to slug somebody with your stub. The, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. If you, if you think your eyes are the offense, you're lusting after somebody, you're thinking, then pluck out your eyes. You're going to find out you still do that without eyeballs. And he's not asking us literally to do that. He's just saying... You know, put that aside. It's, it's preferable 
to not indulge in those things than it is to indulge and to be cast into hellfire. It's interesting. I know somebody on the West Coast, both a young man who cut his hand off with a bandsaw because he read this and took it literally. And uh, I shared the first service about someone I know on the West Coast. His name is Bob Hope, not the one you know. And uh, he had plucked out his eye with a fork. Uh, we were hippies. We were taking LSD. We didn't know we got saved. And, uh, and this, after the service, someone came up to me and said, I used to babysit for him and his kids. She said, I knew him on the West Coast. She said, when he first pulled his eye out, he would wear a patch and he tried to witness to people. They all thought he was nuts. They made fun of him. But I couldn't believe she knew him. I think he had three daughters, Faith Hope, Glory Hope, and Peace Hope. He named them. Uh, but he's not telling us to do this literally. He's just saying, that you think this is your problem? Then cut it off. Pluck it out. You're going to find out the, the problem is the, the issue of the heart. And that has to be settled, he says, so you're not cast into hell fire. He says when he comes again and he's judging between the believers and the unbelievers, the sheep and the goats, it says, then shall he say unto those on his left hand, the goats, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and for his angels. Hell was never designed for human beings. He says it was prepared for the devil and for his angels. Second Thessalonians tells, tells us when he comes, it says, um, You who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel, the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then again, it tells us in Revelation chapter 20 at Armageddon as Christ is returning, it says this, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he shall tread the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. So here in John's Gospel, th this last night, they're with him in the upper room, these 11 guys, maybe a half hour left before they take him in Gethsemane and they, and, they, and they take him to the cross and so forth. And these are the last things that Jesus has to say to them. And amazing, John has recorded them and put them to the page. And Jesus is saying this now, it's a picture. He who abides not in me. Now, now he, what he's doing is he, he, he's saying this is a branch that separates itself. There's something unnatural in this. This is a branch that has severed itself. And he changes pronouns from he and they as he's going through, I abide in you and so forth. Ye can do nothing. And then he changes and says, if a man abide not in me, he's cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. They're separate. It's them and they. There's nowhere in the New Testament that supports or teaches a believer is going to 
not abide, and then be cast into hell forever. It's not in the New Testament. It doesn't teach that. This is a picture, and Jesus is clearly speaking about those who refuse him. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, his heart is broken. He understands what your eternal destiny is without him, and he knows how remarkably that can be changed if you come to him. And here he's talking to those disciples, and John was one of them, and he recorded this conversation by the Holy Spirit. We have it on the page. It says then, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done for you. So (laughs) if you abide in me, our, our, our relationship with him is a reality, not just church, not just religion, relationship. And his words abide in us, the things that he's taught us, that he's had to say to us. Here we gather every Sunday, it's because we have the book. We're here. And he says, if that is true, you can ask anything, he says, and you shall receive it. It'll, it'll be done to you. Now, look, he's not giving you a blank check. He's not saying you can say, Lord, I always wanted this red Ferrari. So, uh, you know, yeah, you're my Lord. Can't give me this thing. Or I always wanted this house, you know, Club Med on the Mediterranean. Give me that. That's not what this is saying. It's saying if his words abide in us and we abide in him, in that context, we will want what he wants. We're abiding in him. His words are abiding in us. And anything we ask certainly will be according to his will. You know, he taught us to pray. He said, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. That's the way we're to pray. Not to get our will done, but to get his will done. And he says, if you pray that way, those things will be given to you. If you are in me and abiding in me and my words are abiding in you, Then you can ask what you will. Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. For for the Father to be glorified in our lives is not a religious game, he says. For the Father to be glorified, that means to elevate, to raise the estimation of him in the sight of others, to make him worth more. He said his father is glorified when we bear fruit, when there's a change in our lives, when it's something that's seen, not just heard. You know, again, years and years have they gone by. I look back at my life before Christ and it's just a different life. I can't believe it that that I've lived both of those lives. And, uh, And just Now for you and I, what he wants to see is he said, you can talk religion all day, but if you bear fruit, if there's evidence in your life, his father is glorified. It doesn't have to be in the pulpit where you work, with your friends, with your children and your spouse, with your neighbors, where you go to school. There's fruit in your life. You're different than... You're a little bit sweeter like the grape. There's just something about you that's different than everything. He says, you know, if that's real, people recognize that. My father is glorified. He's elevated in that. He's lifted up. And he's asking then that we would do that. And verse 9, he says this. As the father hath loved me, so have I loved you. 
continue in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandment, and I abide in his love. So as the Father hath loved me, so have I, not will I, so have I loved you. It was already in process. Now look, understand he's sitting at the table. He's at the table. The 11 guys are with him. Judas is gone. <clears throat> and he's looking at them. <clears throat> you know, there's Peter, who's going to hack somebody's ear off that night, and then deny him three times. James and John are sitting there who wanted to call fire down from heaven and incinerate the Samaritans, the sons of thunder. Thomas is there who has a hard time trusting and believing. Simon the Zealot is there who wanted to kill the Romans. Matthew, the tax collector, is sitting there at the table. And he looks at them, table conversation, and says... As my Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And he says that we would be his disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue in my love. Look, that love is an everlasting love. It's a love that is never extinguished. Many waters cannot quench that love. It is a love that is eternal, unchanging. It is a love that gives everything, but listen, but it asks everything in return. I had the privilege to be involved in a wedding on Friday night, and when that bride and groom are there and they're making their vows, they're making a covenant, they're saying that. I pledge all of my love, and what I want in return is that you pledge all of your love. That's the only way it works. It's a covenant. And here he says, you know, I'm giving my love to you. It's the same love that the Father has loved me with remarkably. With that love, I love you. He says, abide in my love. It's a love that gives all but asks for all in return. And we sit and we think, oh, man, are you kidding uh, you know, I do my best, but I, you know, I blew it the other day, or I got mad and I said something I shouldn't have said, or I watched something I shouldn't have watched, or I, you know, you have your own list, I'm sure, you know, and and, and you're telling me he loves me, you know, in a, in a different way. Look, it, it, his love is stronger than our weakness, or we might you know, might as well not even be here. We sing this song. Uh, my sins, they are many, your mercies are more. My sins, they are many. There's a reason we sing that, and it feels so good to sing it, doesn't it? Your mercies are more. So he says he loves us with the same love the Father loved him, which he says is an everlasting love. Before the worlds were formed, that love was in place. And he's looking at these men sitting at the table with him, saying, I love you with the same love that my Father has loved me. And look, if you keep my commandments, not my suggestions, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. This is how he knows, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. He's not asking us to do anything he himself hasn't done. 
He said, I abide in my Father's love because I keep his commandments. In other words, the relationship between us is so important, so non-negotiable that I keep his commandments. And I'm telling you, if you keep my commandments as I keep the Father's commandments, that then you're going to abide in my love as well. And here's the reason. This is the, this is the, his, his process, his, the purpose, his motivation. Verse 11, these things have I spoken unto you. This is why I'm saying these things, that, that's the word of purpose, that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. He says, these things are things I'm saying to you and they regards my joy being in you and your joy being full. And look, joy differs from happiness. Happiness is based on circumstances. It's based on things working out the way we want them to work out. Somebody says, what's wrong with you, man? I ain't happy. You know, circumstances didn't work. I ain't happy. Joy is different than that. Joy is something we can have in the hospital bed. Joy is something we can have when everything else is falling apart. Joy is something we can have on a difficult day. And it's not natural. It's divine. Only heaven has a monopoly on joy. And he wants us, he says, to have that joy. Chapter 16 and 17 is going to become prominent. It comes up over and over again. And what he's saying to us here is, look, keeping my commandments is something I'm telling you not to hinder your joy. But I know in keeping my commandments, your joy will be full. Isn't it? You know, in the world that we live in, we're thinking, hey, somebody commands me to do this, commands me. You know, it rubs us the wrong way. He's, this is a completely different set of realities. This is heavenly. And he says, you know, if you abide in me, my words abide in you. You're in a place then of openness with the Father. You can ask what you will. Those prayers are answered when, when we're in that step together, he says. Herein is my Father glorified, you bear much fruit. And he says, and with the love my Father has loved me, I'm loving you with that same love. And if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, he says. And he says, and I give you those commandments that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. So it's, he has no desire to deplete or hinder our sense of fulfillment. Because the world offers all kinds of things from drugs to alcohol to vengeance, to money, all of that. And, and none of that provides what he's talking about here. That's why we have the Betty Ford Clinic, so we have a place for alcoholic millionaires to go. Because, you know, the, nothing that the world offers fulfills. So he's saying, yeah, yeah, I've kept the Father's commandments. I'm asking you to keep my commands. He never asks us to do something that he himself hasn't done, even as I have kept my father's commandment. And the reason I'm speaking these things to you is that my joy might remain in you and that your joy, he says, might be full. 
he loves us. You know, there's, there's, there's a situation where a human being refuses me and severs themselves, as it were, from the vine. And when I think of their destiny, it's like those branches that are dried and gathered and they're burned. And when I watch that happening in the vineyard, I know there's an eternal spiritual reality to those things. So I want you guys to abide in me and in the things I've taught you. Because in that context, prayers are natural, prayers are answered. And that's what I want. And, and, and he says, the relationship my father has with me, the way he's loved me, I'm loving you. If you keep my commandments, he says, you'll abide in my love. And I'm specifically telling you these things, not to diminish your joy, but to make it complete. I want your joy to be full. I don't want it to be phony. I don't want it to be phony. There's a lot of things in this life that can hurt us. And in those circumstances, if we believe that even then Jesus is loving us with the same love that the Father loved him. And Jesus went through great difficulty. He sweat blood in Gethsemane. He said, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass. But it says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Now he says to us, he wants us to obey his commands, not his suggestions, that his joy might be in us, and then that our joy might be full. That's what he wants for us. Because everybody thinks, oh, commandments. That's what people who refuse Christ think, and then they end up, he tells us, lost forever. This is my commandment, verse 12, that you love one another, and again, as I have loved you, and in verse 13, he describes that. I want you to love each other the way I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. I want you to love one another. That the way, that's the way I've loved you. I want you to love one another that way. And greater love has no man that love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. He certainly is speaking to a degree of his crucifixion, laying down his life for them. But he had come from glory. He was born in Bethlehem of Judea to a virgin, laid in a stone feeding trough, a manger. He worked in the carpenter shop for 30 years. He knew what it was like to be tired and to be hungry and to be mocked. You know, he had laid down his life for them already in such a remarkable way when he left the Father's throne. And he says, you love one another then as I have loved you. I was willing to set aside all of this to come on your behalf. And the love he's talking about here is not emotion. It's not feelings. It's agape love. It's a love of purpose, of determination. And no greater love as any man than he lays down his life for his friends. You know, I doubt whether many of us in the room are going to step in front of a firing squad for somebody else and take the bullet for them. That's what he did for us, though. I doubt very much whether anyone in this room, maybe someone here or there, is going to lay down their life for someone else. Paul tells us in Romans that sometimes someone may lay down their life for a good man, but that's the exception. He said, perhaps that can happen. 
But God commends his love towards us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were at enmity with him, he gave his life for us. And he's saying there's no greater love than this, than a love that a man, he lays down his life for his friends. So we're, we're, I doubt very much we, we probably will find ourselves in this circumstance of giving our life, laying it down in that sense. But you can give your life in this sense. If you determine to love the people around you, some of them easier to love than others, by your standards, you can lay down your life by giving your time. You can lay down your life by giving your patience. You can lay down your life by giving your ear when you feel blood's ready to run out of it already. From, you, know, you, 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 know, you, you, you see someone, you know, if I say, how you doing, 45 minutes later, I'm going to faint. You know, uh, you lay down your life. He washed their feet. We can lay down our lives in regards to the way we love people that we go to class with, our spouse, our wives, again, school, work. We can lay down our lives. There's ways that we can take of our own and give it, in a sense, laying it down for others. And he says, no greater love has any man than this. And he lays down his life for his friends. And he follows on that word. He's telling them they're his friends. In verse 14, he says, ye are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. I've, I've done what the Father's commanded me to do. I'm asking you to do what I've commanded you to do, that your joy may be full. Because our destiny is eternal. There will be those who burn. His heart is broken about that. He's looking at the men he has there at the table, and he says, you are my friends. It's emphatic in the Greek. It's you, in counterdistinction to all others, are my friends. Plummer, who's a famous uh, commentator over 100 years ago, said, he translates it, and when I say friends, I mean you. There's an emphasis. He, he looks at them at the table said, you, you guys. You're my friends. What was that like? Sitting at a table with him, quiet, listening to him. What was the look in his eye when he said that? What was the tone of his voice? What was his inflection? The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Almighty, the Creator, the Redeemer, the all-powerful one, sitting at the table in human skin and looking at these men saying, you, and I mean you, you're my friends. The only man in the Old Testament ever called the friend of God, the whole Old Testament, was Abraham. But it says, by faith, we are his seed. And what's it like to have Jesus sit quietly with you and say, you're my friend. I encourage you to find out. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. People have all these strange ideas when they hear about hell, they hear about commandments. No, all of that is that we might have joy. All of that is that we might realize the destiny that he has for us. 
an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, fades not away, reserved in heaven for us. And what was it like to have him look in their eyes and see, you guys, you're my friends. What's it like for me to sit early in the morning when it's quiet? Early is usually the only time it's quiet in my life. And hear him. His presence comes. And it's stunning. It stills me. And I know that he loves me. You're my friend. Amazing. Get alone with him. Hear that from him. And he ties it up by saying this. Henceforth, moving forward, I call you not servants. The Greek word is slaves, doulos. Henceforth, I call you not slaves. And he's drawing a picture for them. They understand. For the slave knoweth not what his Lord, what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard of my father, I have made those things known unto you. He says, I don't call you slaves. Slaves got no idea what's going on. He only knows what his master tells him to do. The slave tells the master to do something, and he's got to do it. Doesn't, you know, he doesn't ask, well, what do you think you're telling me to do? You know, there's nothing like that. Look, and here's the deal. People, you know, they hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and they're afraid they have to be a slave. They're afraid, oh, no, I'm going to have to follow his commandments. No, he's saying, he said, I've followed commandments, my father's commandments. That's why there's redemption. That's why there's salvation for you. I want you to follow my commandments because I want to see the joy that's potential for you. I want to see it's not restricting your freedom. It's giving you freedom. It's not earthly. It's heavenly. I want your joy to be full. And he says, understand, I'm not calling you my slaves, but my friends. Because a slave, he doesn't know what his master is doing. He just takes orders and has to do it. And some people think that's the relationship they'll, be, they'll have with Jesus that he just gives me orders and, and I just got to do what he's saying. That's, he says, I'm not doing that. He says, but I've called you my friends because everything I've heard of the Father, I've made known to you. We're sitting here today. Look, there's a world out there in darkness without hope, without joy. He's made everything known to us. We know why he came. We know about Zachariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist. We know about his time in the carpenter shop and his baptism at the River Jordan. We know about his miracles, the rebuking of the wind and the sea. We know that he sat in this room with these men. We know of his crucifixion and his resurrection. We know he's at the right hand of the Father now where he ever liveth and maketh intercession for the saints. We know he's coming for us. We know he's setting up a kingdom. We know beyond that there's an eternity. He's told us. And he's told us about our days when you see these things happening. 
taking for granted that our generation would be able to see it. We're the first generation can turn on the tube or look at our mobile device and see what's happening all over the world. When you see these things happening, know that I'm at the very door. I'm not calling you my slaves. Slave just takes orders. He doesn't know what his master's doing. I've called you my friends. I know how crazy it's going to get. I know the kind of world you're going to live in. I know the difficulties that may come. But I've kept nothing back. Everything I've heard of my father, I've made known to you. Because you're my friends. I can't. Imagine what it was like to sit there and to look into his eyes and hear the tone of his voice. You're my friends. As we close, I'm going to ask, if you don't know Christ today, you just know him as the master in the sky that gives commandments you don't understand who he is. And you're living your empty life. <laughs> and it's ebbing away. An hour at a time and a day at a time. And you have no real perspective about eternity. About what's going to happen when you breathe your last breath. And if you're saying, I don't want nothing to do with Jesus. Then you're removing yourself from the vine. You're severing yourself. You're putting yourself in a position, but there's nothing but eternal fire ahead of you. Don't blame him. How can a God of love do that? No, no, no. This God of love comes, puts on human skin, sits among us, says, don't look at religion. Look at me. I'm telling you the things I'm telling you, not to confine you, but because I want your joy to be full. I'm only commanding you that you love one another. And no greater love is any man than this. He lays down his life for his friends. And you are my friends. I don't call you slaves. A slave doesn't know what his master's doing. Because I've called you my friends. And all of the things I've heard from the Father. I've made known unto you. We have to be careful we don't take that for granted as his sons and daughters. You have to be beyond careful if you're here today and you've never come to Christ or if you sit here and you're playing a religious game and you don't know him. He loves you. He died for you. He can't stand the thought of you going into the fire. That's why he's pleading, abide in me. Have your life from me. Because the people that don't, this is their destiny. This is their destiny. No man has any greater love than this than he lays out his life for his friends. That's why I've come. I don't want to see you in the fire. I want you to abide in me. I want to see you filled with joy. And I never call you my slaves. You're my friends. I've told you the whole story. I've told you why I do what I do. I tell you everything the Father has told me. 
So we're going to sing a last song today. And as we do, look, I would ask all of you just in your own hearts to be saying, Lord, let this, this week, Lord, let me find that moment alone with you somewhere where I actually hear you say, you're my friend. You're my friend. And I've laid down my life for you. And there's no greater love that I could demonstrate. For those of you who have come and you've never given your life to Christ, forget about Calvary Chapel, forget about church, forget about religion. We're talking about this one God in human skin who came to walk among us. You know, a friend of mine used to say, if you saw an anthill with all these ants running around and you knew they were going to turn the fire hydrant on and all the ants are going to be drowned and swept away, you could stand over top of the anthill and scream at them, you need to get out of here, you're going to end up in big trouble. They'd all die of little heart attacks. So he said, you know, he used to say, what do you do? How do you communicate? You become an ant. And you get among them. And you tell them, if you don't get yourself out of this, you're going to be swept away. And I've come so that you might live. The only thing is his dissension from glory to being a human is much greater than a human becoming an ant. He's really come down to walk among us. If you don't know him today, he loves you. He died for you. Not Calvary Chapel, not church, not religion. Jesus Christ. And if you've never given your life to him, today's the day to do that. As we worship, if you know you need to be saved, if you know you don't know Christ as your Savior, you can get out of your seat and walk down and stand here, right while we're singing. If a friend came with you, they're going to say, come on, get down with me. I'll get down with you. Let's go down. And secure that eternal destiny that's filled with joy. Ask him for forgiveness, because there's none in this world. Ask him to fill your life with joy. Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Let's stand together. Let's worship. We want to come. Jesus said, if you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father and all the angels in heaven. We want to give you a Bible. We want to give you some literature to read. The rest of us, as we worship, let's just in our hearts be asking him for those moments we can hear his voice calling us his friends. Let's pray for those here who don't even know that, who have never heard it before, who don't know Christ, that their destiny would change today. Father, I know you've overheard. We put these things before you, Lord. Certainly we pray for those among us that, Lord, have never come, that have no idea of your love, Lord, that see your commandments as hindering and confining. That don't realize, Lord, that you are repulsed by hell more than they are. And that your desire is that they might live. 
Lord, would you bring them, Lord, today into your love and your forgiveness? Would you, Lord, bring them today to stand, Lord, publicly to make you their Savior? And Lord, for the rest of us, Lord, we don't want to ever take for granted our relationship with you. We know Paul said him and Timothy were your bond slaves. But you're the one, Lord, that sat at the table and said, you're my friends. We want to hear it, Lord. We want to hear it more and more, Lord. We believe we're praying according to your will. And you said, if we abide in your words, and that's your word, and we abide in you, that our prayers can be answered. So we put it before you, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen.